making henry smile oh henry what a marvelous christmas this has turned out to be and i never thought i would say that again after you died i'm sitting here alone in my old armchair in our quiet living room with only the mute television for company but the quiet is filled with happy memories of a wonderful day and in its own way quite a wonderful year before it and so i'm happy now you know a lot of this but not today's adventure so i'm going to recap it all for you in sequence it started as you know at the dentists my dentures were making an awful clacking old lady noise whenever i opened my mouth and a lisping hissy sound when i spoke it drove me demented and i was driving the poor dentist crazy i knew it but i had to get rid of that noise or it would drive me to my grave not that i minded going there since i'm just waiting to join you anyway now don't scold henry for when i said that to the dentist that got him right fired up too i was not to give up on life and i was still healthy and strong and who knew what wonders awaited me i snorted at that but it charged him up to make a greater effort for me anyway i was sitting in that lobby of that clinic too often for my own good that's where i saw this young lad he must have been having some laborious dental procedure too because he was there just as often his leg had a nervous shake and the whole bench shook and shuddered with him he was uncomplaining like the rest of us but what i noticed right away because it was so unusual was that he was a reader kids his age usually have their cell phones but this lad always had a book and his reading was all over the place detective or adventure fiction books on sports and sports people as expected but also books on photography mythology self help travel history and even biographies i started looking out for him and more than once i was tempted to ask if i could borrow his books though i managed to control myself you'll be proud to know as i said he had this habit of shaking his leg and every so often it would result in his shoelace unraveling he would patiently retie it over and over again after i'd seen this dozens of times and not interfered i lost the battle for self control and approaching him as subtly as ever i could i asked would you like to learn to tie that shoelace so it never opens up of its own accord he looked up from the offending shoe as if he was seeing me for the first time so i told him i'd noticed it causing him endless bother after the initial confusion at being approached in this nosy parker fashion no one can say i don't know my faults henry he rapidly recalibrated and admitted it would be the answer to a prayer that he had tried many so-called foolproof methods 
but none had worked, yet he was always willing to try another. I told him all about your ancestor in the Hungarian cavalry, Henry, of whom we knew only this, that he'd needed to have shoelaces that didn't come undone at inconvenient moments, and who'd sent down the generations this simple but absolutely reliable method. I showed it to him, and in a few attempts he had it bat, and we took it for a test run. The next few minutes were filled with a comradely tension as he shook his foot as usual, and we exchanged covert glances and silly grins every few seconds that the shoelace stayed tight and trim. Of course the gods conspired, and I was called in for my session, having waited through countless shoelace unravelings unsummoned. He gave me a rueful grin as I went in, and I gave him a cheery wave. I was sure we'd meet again, and I would discover how this panned out. I trudged off to get my clackety-clack sorted out, and on my way out, stopped at the reception to say thank you, as always, when the girl at the counter stopped me. She said Paul had left a message for me, which was intriguing since I had no idea who Paul was. The note said, It works! Thank you so much! I'm truly grateful, Paul! And there was a smiley face with very crooked teeth under his name. So, of course, I knew who Paul was then, and I thought it was very considerate of him. For all, he was a teenager, and boys are usually at their very worst at that age. Your ancestor had saved another life, I thought, Henry, as nothing is more exasperating than a shoelace that will not stay tied. We kept meeting off and on. He thanked me very properly and said the system had worked with all his shoes and he was now a big fan of the Hungarian cavalry. We laughed at that and he wondered if there was any truth in the family myth. Surely... Buckles were more military style. We should Google it, he said, and I said I might, if I remembered the next time I was at the library. So he whipped out his cell phone and did it right there in the dentist's waiting room. And I said, I wish I knew how to do clever things like that. And he said he could teach me. Where was my phone because it was no use teaching me on his I was surprised, to put it mildly. Most teenagers avoid anyone except their own peer group. And here was this youngster casually volunteering to teach me. Well, the short version of the I said and he said and I did and he did is that he downloaded some apps there and then saying I was hopelessly behind the curve and there was no way he could get me to start without them. So would it be okay? I gave him the nod, and in a short while, he handed the phone back to me and started issuing directions step by step until I had pecked out the inquiry myself. Henry, I'm so sorry to tell you this, dear. They were huge boots, knee-high, with buckles and straps and a chain at the ankle. No laces anywhere. I hid this from you earlier, I think, and I still feel slightly traitorous. Either your ancestor was family fiction or his story was. 
But it doesn't matter, dear, because the knot works and that's the most important thing. Paul said we were now one all, since we had each taught the other something useful. I said that was hardly fair, since what he had taught me was actually a door through which I could enter to learn many new things and was far more valuable. But he said, I had no idea what a blessing it was not to be retying his shoelaces every few minutes. And so, we were even, and he was to be the best judge of that. From then on, we each came ready with ideas of what to teach the other. And you know all about that because many's the time you've given me the ideas. Visits to the dentist became a pleasure to be looked forward to. And the shaking leg, I confess I no longer noticed it, though we always sat beside each other. He showed me stuff with the cell phone mostly, all kinds of tricks, shortcuts he called them. I introduced him to views and subjects he didn't know existed. I talked of books and he talked of articles and research on the net. I set him tests to investigate strange phenomena of the world and he reciprocated by asking me to book flights and hotels online as if I was actually going there. Best of all, he taught me to type with two thumbs, replacing my old and inefficient one-finger hunt and peck. He liked to learn little seemingly insignificant things, offering elders a shoulder instead of a hand at the steps, for instance or how to go through a door and then hold it open for a lady. Much less red rag to the bull, even for feminists. Youngsters have lost these niceties. He had a rollicking laugh when I told him the correct etiquette for steps was man's second going up, but first coming down, being there to break her fall if necessary. He said he didn't know too many ladies who fell down at the very prospect of steps. And I told him he was too young still, but the information would come in handy when he got to our age. One day I realized that Paul had become a friend. Too young and so unlikely, but still a friend. And I started dreading the day the dentist got my dentures right, because I was sure that would end our strange May-December friendship. But one day, he ups and says, Your speech is getting much better, Gertie. The hissing is gone and the clacking's almost gone. I don't think you'll have many more sessions. Why don't we meet at the library instead? I must admit I'd never thought of that. Why would a teenager want to meet an old woman like me? So I asked him straight out. I said, I was touched by his kindness and I would love it, of course. But why would he want to? He said, because it was fun for him to teach me new things and he enjoyed the stuff I was teaching him too. It wasn't all one-way traffic, he said. And that was so true, Henry. After you, I never thought I would find another person with whom I could explore again. Paul knows lots of modern stuff, but not much about the past. My knowledge goes the other way. We enjoy sharing our knowledge with each other, but also making discoveries together. I thought my interest in all that had died when you passed. 
this has become a chance to be mentally alive again. And so, we continued at the library. I'd often spend the whole week thinking of what would interest him, with you helping me to come up with something unique, like when it's okay to start eating at a formal dinner, as soon as you're served or after everyone is served. Of course, he told me that's all arcane nonsense since no one has formal sit-down dinners anymore. But I know he likes information like that. I also taught him all your fancy pocket square folding styles. He loved that. And he doesn't even own a pocket square. Often, when I'd get to the library, he'd be sitting there with a pile of books, ready and waiting. We didn't speak much about personal stuff, except I probably mentioned you fairly often, dear. And he mentioned his parents and younger sister. But where home was or school was or any of that stuff, I do confess I had no clue. In early November, the city puts on its Christmas finery. You know I love all the pomp and revelry of Christmas. But the day itself is a lonely one for singles, Henry dear, to be got through as quickly as possible. You sit alone at home with your dusty memories, knowing everyone is celebrating family and togetherness, and you're outside the magic circle. And that a TV and books can't take the place of loved ones. So I was knocked ass over tea kettle when in the middle of a whispered discussion, Paul interrupted himself and asked me what I was doing for Christmas. Would I like to come to his place for lunch? I was completely taken aback. We did not have that kind of relationship. I think my eyes missed it up. No, I know my eyes missed it up. Paul grounded me by saying, Now don't go all old lady on me, Gertie. That made me laugh and I sidestepped the sentimentality by asking him if he had his mum's permission to invite me. He said he'd wanted to ask me first, but it should be no problem. They often had friends for Christmas lunch. So I told him it would be wonderful, but I'd only say yes after he had her okay. Which came in short order and I marvelled at this generous family and not for the first time wondered what they were like to have raised such an infinitely curious and knowledge-thirsty son. I chose my gifts carefully. You must remember, because we discussed it for ages. Chocolates for his mother, wine for his father, and a pretty scarf for his sister. For Paul himself, a gift voucher at a website where I knew he had his eye on a digital device and was hoping Christmas would bring it within reach. And I bought him a pocket square, though God knows he has no need of one. Before I met Paul, I wouldn't have known you could get gift vouchers on websites or how to get them. But now, I can navigate these sites like a pro. I have a separate credit card with a small credit limit and all the bells and whistles on my phone that my personal coach has taught me so I can keep myself safe. All laden with gifts, I arrived at the house earlier today, having successfully Google mapped my way. The city looked festive, and I was both excited and apprehensive 
to be out for lunch on Christmas Day and to be meeting Paul's family. I put a smile in my heart and rang the doorbell confidently. Paul's mother opened the door. She looked at me politely, but questioningly and blankly. And I struggled to hang on to that smile as it rushed out of my heart. I said, Hello, you must be Paul's mother. I'm Gertie and it's so kind of you to invite me. But I must have stopped talking at some point because her reaction was just so stunning. Her jaw actually dropped. She covered her mouth with her hand and shook her head and stared at me. She closed her eyes and opened them again and said, You're Gertie? And I said, Yes. I didn't know what else to say. And finally she said, Oh God, how mannerless of me. Please come in, Gertie. She helped me off with my hat and coat and woolen scarf. I know it's an old lady thing, Henry, but I get these sore throats and I'd rather wear the scarf than contend with that raspy throat all winter. Now hush and listen. You don't know any of this. We enter the living room. No Paul in sight. His father jumped up from his chair on seeing me and gave his wife a quizzical look. It was very disconcerting. Had Paul not got their permission to invite me? I'd never known him to fib. Yet Gertie was obviously known to them because when mum introduced me to dad as Gertie, he rearranged his face and came forward with his hand outstretched to welcome me. The sister, Irena, gave me the briefest of hellos and fled from the room ostensibly to call Paul. Meeting Paul was a little awkward since we'd never met in a social setting before. He introduced me properly to his parents and sister, naming me first as the elder and the lady, just as I'd taught him, and I marveled at how effortlessly he assimilated all these little niceties as I thanked them again for inviting me. I put my gifts under the tree in the corner where there was already a pile of gaily wrapped parcels. In the little lull that followed, I decided to take the bull by the horns and said I couldn't help noticing that they'd been shocked to see me. You did clear it with them, didn't you, Paul? Of course I did, he said hotly. You said I could invite Gertie, Mum. Why were you shocked to see her? I did, Paul, you're right. It's just... She trailed into silence. What, Mum? Well... You know, the others coming today are our age and Irena's. So when you asked if you could invite your friend Gertie, we just assumed she was your age. I swear I wanted the earth to open up and swallow me, Henry. I didn't know what to say. I don't blame them. Who expects their teenage son to be friends with a 70-year-old woman? It sounds so dirty. I know our friendship is completely innocent and even I was revolted. Don't you dare laugh, Henry. It was such an embarrassing moment. Did you never tell them how old I was, Paul? I asked gently. No, he said, sounding a little baffled. It never struck me. 
I know you're older than me, Gertie. I'm not an ass. But I just think of you as a friend. So your age never came up. Why should it? I don't understand what the big issue is, guys. I burst out laughing and crying at the same time. And there was a big fluster as tissues were rushed for. And Paul intoned sagely, Now you're being an old lady, Gertie. Which made me snort with laughter. When we'd all settled down again, I vowed it was a splendid Christmas gift. Not just that a teenager considered me his friend, which is quite a special gift all by itself, but that he'd actually dismissed the age difference as inconsequential. His mum lightened the tone by telling me I was getting a Christmas gift appropriate for a teenager, since that's whom she had been expecting. But I could always exchange it later. And I averring I never would, since it would be a reminder to me not to judge my friends on any standard except friendship. The rest of the afternoon was very normal. The food and chatter at the table was prodigious, with everyone weighing in willy-nilly. Gifts were exchanged and I received a pretty cornflower blue watch with a huge big dial. All the rage nowadays, though not quite the thing for a lady of my advanced years. But I'd learned a thing or two about judging people by their age that afternoon, and I was determined to wear the strange thing and see if I could pull it off. Paul gave me a separate gift, a book about architectural sites across the world. I told him he could borrow it after I'd finished reading it, and we exchanged a warm smile across the living room. He loved my gifts too and shook out the pocket square immediately, bundled it into an elegant bunch and stuffed it perfectly into his pocket where it sat incongruously the rest of the afternoon. Who would have thought a teenager could be capable of such an elegant thank you? I left for home soon after that, determined not to outstay my welcome and to hold on to the festive jollity and good cheer as long as I could. And that's why this is such a marvellous Christmas, Henry. All my happy memories of Christmas are only with you. And to that happy list, I can now add this one too. And you must be smiling now, Henry. I'm sure of it. I always love to make you smile. Angel The feet pounded away, left to right mostly at this time of day, going to work in clean, bright, bustling offices. Later in the evening, the crowds would be going right to left, going home, to husbands and wives and children and parents, and freshly cooked food steaming invitingly at the dinner table. They would greet each other, say hello, Exchange a hug or a kiss, certainly a look. All things I had no access to. Not an office or a home. Not family or friends 
or colleagues, not food or cleanliness or warmth or love. <laughs> Perhaps that last was a country too far. Let's dial it down a notch, shall we? Not even eye contact. Yeah, that sounds more in my neck of the woods. Love? Ha! <laughs> Love. I adjusted my back against the wall where I sat. But there was no way anymore to make this loosely assembled bag of bones comfortable. It ached everywhere. Just sitting there with my hand occasionally stretching out to shake the tin can in front of me was an almost Herculean effort. Not that the shaking was even worth the expense of the energy. The can still held only the pebbles I had put in myself. Not even one pair of those smartly shod feet that had tick-tocked past me had been attached to a kind or generous hand, dropping in a few errant coins. But that was par for the course, I was used to it. Perhaps later in the day. Never more truly did it come to me that beggars can't be choosers. Yes, I know I don't look it anymore. But once I too had a loving mother and teachers who had painstakingly taught me things like that. But that was a long, long, long time ago. No use dwelling on that now. I tried to distract myself from the burning hole within me by focusing acutely on my surroundings. Tap, tap, tap the high heels went. Deep cabinet patent leather. A good choice for a workday. Smart without being too smart. Crunch, 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 marched the tan Oxfords. A swish dresser, because the pants were a deep blue. I did not raise my eyes to look higher. The puddling jeans and the shambling overpriced sneakers told their story. This was an affluent neighborhood, a commercial street, why else would I be here? The sounds I waited for, I ached for, yearned for, almost lusted for. The whoosh of a note or the tinkle of a coin into my tin can. I never heard those. The pitch and tumult in my stomach had become quiet. I'd not given it a morsel to work on for days. This morning... I'd forced down some grimy, rancid-smelling water and had almost gagged on it. My stomach had rumbled and tumbled in preparatory readiness as it geared up for what was coming its way till it realized it wasn't something, just nothing. Still a steady flow of humanity on the street, but not the urgent morning surge anymore. This would continue for another few hours before the pace picked up again for the end of working day crowds. I watched the shadows shorten and then lengthen in the opposite direction. The hours must have passed. The cabinet patent leather pumps looked as sharp as they had that morning. Eager footfalls carried away people to their homes, their loves, their lives. How long had I been sitting there? Darkness deepened 
and the street lights spluttered on and there was no sound on the deserted street the tin can still held only the pebbles i tried to raise my hand or move my head but my body seemed locked in a terrible torpor a deathly quiet had settled on the street it would stay that way till morning only the occasional late worker or the even less occasional street cleaner or a stray dog or cat or a scrabbling rat would break the echoing silence till daybreak and the reignition of life my body had become silent perhaps the deathly quiet of the street had cast its mesmeric shadow over me too no breath sounds or audible heartbeat no phlegm rattling through the fleshless passages no gurgle in the belly no thoughts sliding soundlessly through my mind a persistent tap 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 floated over the silence and fought its way into my consciousness my own hand trembling mercilessly and unstoppably against the cold pavement no effort of will or body could give it pause it fluttered helplessly like the wings of a moth beating against a glass window pane loud guttural groans rent the air where were they coming from it sounded like a person in mortal agony i peered up and down the street for a beat or two before i realized they were streaming out of me i hauled my moribund body out of that hole i'd made for myself in the pavement i was too scared to sit there anymore without knowing how or why i realized i was leaking down the street leaving an oily wake behind me my legs had taken control i'd learned that when they did that it was best to leave them to have their way they dragged me through the lights and sounds of a living humming city down to the murky silent waterside and deposited me on a bench overlooking the swift and relentless black river so what do you think my legs were telling me they brought me to the tumbling river with its banks reeking of black slime and its midsection frothing and bubbling busily along like some primeval ooze but they'd also settled me on this decrepit bench poking its formidable self into my bony back and its stone cold seat chilling my feeble legs through my thread bare pants i sat resting my weary bones on that bench my eyes on the merciless river and my mind empty i don't know how long i sat there or what i looked at or what i thought of perhaps nothing I hadn't the strength to think. I hadn't eaten in days, and there's only so many times I could fool my gullible stomach into thinking water was food. It wouldn't accept water anymore. It just gagged at the very thought of it. The river flowed on, and time ticked on, and perhaps they would mercifully take me with them. But it was as though my mind and body had just hit a pause button. So I don't know when he came and sat by me. I never saw him, nor heard him. I felt him snuggling against my trouser leg in the dark. I felt him 
press his warm body against my cold, cold leg and hold it there. He lay down on my feet and wrapped his body tight around my legs. He nudged me with his head and prodded me with his paws. I did nothing, no response. So he began to lick me. First a single lick and a pause and then another and then a few more and then an onslaught of limitless licks until even I lifted myself out of my slum to see who it was who was so persistent. Not much in the looks department, I must declare. Black and dirty white, matted hair, ragged ears, muddy paws, but no less a fisher of lost souls, certainly my lost soul. I got up from that cold bench beside that black river and dragged myself back from the brink into the land of the living, the land of light and sound, food and drink, joys and disappointment. And he followed right at my heel, matching his hustling little steps to my dot and drawl pace. We two, strangers but still soulmates, slowly approached the riotous lights of the teeming town. A young couple bundled out of a doorway and almost knocked us down. In laughing apology, he put his hand in his pocket and poured a seemingly endless stream of coins into the tin can I was still holding. They ran on, giggling and chittering, their arms around each other and their heads tossing and turning as they hurtled down the pavement oblivious of everything except their own youthfulness and their two happy selves. The stubborn little licks on my shoe brought me out of my stupor. I peered into the tin can without knowing what I was seeing. It was half full. More money than I had seen in... I couldn't even remember when. Another couple, older, arms linked supportively, stepping cautiously along the unruly pavement stopped before me and thrust some crackling money into the tin can. It was so unexpected. They were gone before I could react and even murmur a thanks. A tug on my trouser leg finally got me going again. He yipped ahead, pulling me along like a tiny locomotive. I shambled along behind him to a pavement food stall. He certainly knew his way around. The big, booming man with the salt and pepper bushy moustache offered me a hot soup and a meal and led me kindly to a quiet corner to eat it in. I accepted in wordless gratitude and amazement. I could hardly absorb the change in my circumstances. The moustachioed man bent down and stroked the ragged little fellow. Well done, angel, he said and served him his own meal in what looked like an oft-repeated gesture. The hot soup spread its life-giving goodness slowly about my insides, and warmth and faint hope and feeble strength regenerated within me. On my knee rested a patient little black-and-white head, getting steadily wetter with the drops that fell unstintingly from my grateful eyes.
of old darlings and new. She sat under the gnarled old tree with its soft, velvety petals and wept and wept till she had no more tears left to weep. They had tried to pull her away several times, but she had pushed them all off and flung herself on the small, freshly heaped mound of earth and wept some more deep, shuddering sobs of a fathomless grief. She knew they understood her grief, and they felt it too in their own way, but they could not possibly comprehend the depth of her anguish. How could she go on without her darling Sammy in her life? Letting him go had been the hardest thing she had ever done in a life filled with many hard things. When he had finally put his head down in her lap and let out his last deep breath, her heart had ached as if it were really breaking into many pieces. She had wished that she had died too. Yet here she was, still. He had been her closest companion these last ten years. Too brief, too swiftly gone ten years. She had known this day would come, that he would one day leave her. But she had not expected it would be so soon. She had hoped for at least twenty years together. Oh, she had known that was unlikely, but fifteen, seventeen, that was possible. Sammy had always been the more capable, organized one of the duo. He seemed to always have a handle on life, what to do, where to go, when to go. He would nudge her along, never letting her fall behind. And with him at her side, she was strong, tall and confident. Now she felt alone, crumpled and scared. She heaved a few more dry sobs over the little mound and rubbed her cheek into the silken petals of the flowers and heard the soft hiss of them releasing their juice as she bruised them with her face. She smelt their old, familiar fragrance. How often had she and Sammy sat here, under this very tree, wrapped lovingly around each other? She missed him more than she could say. She could feel the warmth of the day ebb, and just as she thought how Sammy would have been nudging her to return indoors, she felt a cold nose snuggling against her neck. The days and years tumbled into one another. Memory, confusion and dawning comprehension collided with each other as she struggled to conform her instantly exultant feelings with what she knew to be her painful reality. She heard the achingly familiar snuffling sounds of young Sammy and was dragged back through the churning washing machine of her thoughts into the present. The tears flowed again more freely. For it was young Robbie now, wasn't it? Her hands reached out gratefully through the cascading drops for Robbie. He fitted his sweet little head under her questing fingers and for the first time she felt a flood of love towards this little fellow. She had begrudged him any scrap of affection. This intruder, this future usurper of Sammy's place. But 
Sammy had chosen Robbie himself and had trained him tirelessly in their mistress's ways, and that should count for something. And now, Sammy was gone, and Robbie was ready. He presented his back to her seeking fingers, and as they curled around the strap, he let out an encouraging little yip. With her other hand, she blew Sammy a last goodnight kiss and promised to visit him every day. She let Robbie lead her through the little back garden to the front of the house, his four legs fitting their stride perfectly to her too. She realized he must have stayed all day out there under the old tree with Sammy and her. He had not intruded on her sorrow at all, unlike the folks at home, all of whom had come chivying her frequently through the day. He must have just settled down next to her and waited patiently and silently till she was ready, probably missing his mentor Sammy himself. Robbie sat her down in her usual place and flopped down beside her. Her hand, her aching heart and her slowly healing mind reached out to him hesitantly and stroked his sturdy head. You're a darling dog, Robbie, and I love you too. But I miss Sammy terribly. Do you understand that? She whispered as she fondled his soft ear and Robbie licked the back of her hand as if to say he did. The accident that had robbed her of her vision at such a poised for flight age had robbed her of her will to live too and for seemingly interminable months she had lived on the edge of a precipice. It was Sammy who had somehow brought her back from that edge and as his health had started failing she had found herself edging towards it again. The suggestion to get in another seeing-eye dog and start his personal training while Sammy was still there had created a furore. The idea had been, of course, to ease the transfer for her, though it had been very carefully presented to her as giving Sammy some respite from his duties in his infirmity. She could hardly have denied him that. But no one had consulted Sammy. He had rejected one dog after another with low snarls and fierce growls until in exasperation they had taken him to the training centre and let him pick out Robbie himself. He had then taken Robbie through all his paces, stepping up the challenges from week to week, even though he sensed her antipathy towards the young cadet. She had permitted herself to be led around all day by Robbie, but her heart had been with Sammy, and every evening she would come home and release Robbie instantly so she could turn to Sammy. She felt the slight nudge on her toe, reminding her to drink her tea while it was still hot, and her heart filled with love for this feisty little dog who had accepted all the scorn and disdain she had poured on his furry little head and still remained true to his oath to keep her strong and safe. Sammy would always be her first true darling and no one would ever dislodge him from that place. He had led her through her dark maze into the sunlight.
but Robbie could be her new darling and walk beside her into a bright future.